I suppose if Fool of Pilch had got his bat down just a split second sooner, it would all have turned out different. The spraying pirates wouldn't have been burned out of their hellish nest. The Black Queen of Madagascar would have had one level fewer. Not that she'd have missed a mere one, I dare say, the insatiable great bitch. The French and British wouldn't have bombarded Tamatave, and I'd have been spared kidnapping, slavery, blowpipes, and risk of death and torture in unimaginable places. I, old fool, has got a lot to answer for, God bless him. Wait, I just noticed the, the French and the British would have bombarded Tamatave. They yeah, weren't they, there for they're, him. They're, they're being there had nothing to do with Flashman. I think it's <laughs> part of his great delusion that everything kind of centers around his actions. Oh my God. Hey, yo. Yo, John, what is happening, dude? Now here's a guy with a rep for being root. Am I right? <laughs> he does. Am I right? Terrorizing people wherever he goes. It's not intentional. Flashman's just keeping the flow. Look, what I'm saying is everybody, if you can, read a Flashman. <laughs> That's, That's what it. I'm Good urging. Night. That's it. <laughs> Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, think I that's know the analysis we needed for the book right there. <laughs> this intro is going to be downright bizarre to people who have, are not familiar <laughs> with what, who didn't glance at the episode title and haven't heard of these books. It will be. Well, we're going to start walking them through it right now. <laughs> just apologetically. Uh, I'm going to apologize first for my Malcolm McDowell impression, just to start things off. Uh, that intro, I was trying to channel my inner Malcolm. Uh, I think you yes. did. I think you did a a perfectly fine job. I mean, not everybody's Daryl Hammond. I think you did just fine, John. <laughs> I try to be Daryl Hammond in every <laughs> aspect of my life if I can. Um, but if you, oh, at a car dealership opening right now, what could that guy possibly be up to? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, probably he's out in Madagascar right now. You know what? I bet I bet he sells out like 2,000 seat theaters and is completely fine and is a rich guy. I bet I bet Daryl Hammond's doing just fucking Do fine. Has been comedians have the life of like a 90s alt rock band, like where they're still like selling out concerts and stuff? I, I think I think that shit? he probably goes and does the like casino you know moderate sized concert hall venue type stuff and trots out as bill clinton and lord knows what else goat boy was he goat boy or was that another one of those guys <laughs> i think it was mr bananas if i'm remembering correctly Ah, uh, you know i frequently say on episodes we're gonna cut all this and then it gets left in the episode we're definitely gonna cut all this john <laughs> But our Daryl Hammond fans are going to be disappointed. <laughs> our Daryl Hammond fans are going to be insulted by uh, the amount of uh, lack of seriousness which with we're treating Mr. Hammond. John, what are we talking about tonight? What are well, we doing? Chris, we're going to remind everybody we did a five-hour episode on Swishbucklers. And we declared the Swishbucklers, which, just to recap, is uh, the mid-70s to mid-80s comedies adapting old swashbucklers, but turning them into raunchy sex comedies, more or less. We started with Richard Lester's 1975 film, Royal Flash, adapted by George MacDonald Fraser from his 1970 novel of the same name. And I don't know if this is both of us, but for my part, my takeaway was, I like Royal Flash a lot more than I thought I did. I, I knew I liked it, but I kind of love it now. I, I, really, yes. I really have great affinity for that movie. 
Yes, for sure. I was trying to recall back when I still programmed the movie theater, there was some series I was doing where I was determined to show Royal Flash in this series. And even though I couldn't find a print and I cannot imagine what series that was, but I got it and watched it. This is the thing. I watched it for the first time when we got a print and showed the print of it. And I really, honest to God, cannot remember what series it was in. Do you happen to remember? No, not at all. I'm surprised to hear that. I, and I'm surprised I, to hear you got a and print. I, was, I know it was like a very limited release when it came out. Yes. So I'm surprised that it some was, even survived. It was very hard to find. It was very, mm. very hard to find. We might have found a 16 or something of it. But um, it, yes, it was very hard to find. And I was like... We're doing this series. I have got to include Royal Flash. There's no way we're doing this series without Royal Flash. And it was, I, I cannot remember. Brit Eklund retrospective, maybe. It was, a, and it was a small series too. It was like an eight film series. It was not a big series. So I can't even, this is what happens when your memory goes. You can't even, you can't even. And I was thinking, what series would Royal Flash be perfect for? Only a Swishbuckler series. Right. There's no other, and I definitely wasn't <laughs> doing a Swishbuckler series. There's no other, even even a George McDonald Frazier series. But you should get it if you can. You know what I mean? It's not essential <laughs> for a George McDonald Frazier series. You definitely got to get cross swords. But um, yeah, no, I came away with the same impression. I think a lot of that was placing it in the context of the extremely crummy other films. But I think also just watching it severed from Richard Lester's stuff in that era, which is so excellent. Some of my very favorite movies that just I, I love Richard Lester in that era and and removing it from the context of his greatness it feels like not a low point but a little bit of of a dip compared to other stuff he's doing around that time where he's so experimental and fun and interesting that it does feel like a cut below them if you take it out of that and sort of greet it on its own it's very very fun it's a very very enjoyable movie it is it really is and it does fit in not night more nicely more nicely it fits in neater <laughs> with those uh those other films i think especially considering that McDonald Frazier, of course, was the screenwriter of his Musketeers movies and just kind of appreciating like what the swishbuckler is and like what that approach to swashbuckling adventures in the 70s is. We were curious about, you know, the the kind of infamous Flashman series of novels, which I knew nothing about and never read any of them. And now that I've read one, I feel like this was essential in understanding swishbucklers. <laughs> like this might be the freaking origin this uh, 12 book series that started in 1970. I, I think that like this might be like where, you know, the whole kind of raunchy take on the swashbuckler even came from in the first place. Um, before before today, all I knew George McDonald Frazier for was as the uh, guy who made James Bond dress like a clown and octopusy. And now I have a whole new appreciation of who he is. <laughs> he does. I know very little about him, except that every interview I read with him, he's he's just so dyspeptic. He's just one of those people that cannot be prevailed upon to be to express a positive, happy sentiment. He's just he's <laughs> really? just what. Yeah, he's just very, very not even there's like a fun to it. But one of those people who's like basically answers like questions with like, why don't you shut the fuck up? He's like that kind of like, this is an idiotic thing to ask me, you know, just that kind of like attitude. Um, 
yeah how do we want to how do we want to dig into it you want to give a little um background on what the flashman books are Let's where they come what from? they are a little bit yeah. before we get into the aperitif um so again they start in 1970 there are 12 books in the series we are going to be talking about flashman's lady from 1977 so a couple of years after the royal flash movie comes out and why do we pick this one uh because it's the one with pirates in it that's all the reason i picked it uh, seemed like a pretty safe. Uh, yes, that I would, we would picked it. We picked it in the sense that you said, Chris, we're going to do this one. That's the way in which we together picked this book. <laughs> yeah, no, it seemed it seemed a good one. It's the sixth book in the series. Uh, the, the series is not chronological. It kind of goes back and forth in Flashman's lifetime. Uh, but Flashman himself, Harry Paget Flashman, is a minor character from a 1857 novel by Thomas Hughes called Tom Brown's School Days. He's essentially the bully in this rugby school. And what uh, McDonald Frazier did was take this minor character and turn him, uh, decide, you know, to tell the story of what happened after he was expelled from school, after this character left. And what he decided he did was hobnob with all the notable uh, (laughs) historical figures from the next, you know, 60 years. So each one of these novels takes place in a very specific historic setting, like Swashbucklers, you know, brings in very historic figures very important historic figures um but kind of the the offset of it i guess this happens in the first novel but again i haven't read it kind of the thing that sets it off is that flashman survives the 1842 retreat from cabal in afghanistan which is also called the massacre of uh, general elfoston's army the worst military debacle of victoria's reign and he's made a hero after being found the last englishman alive at piper's fort in uh, jalalabad clutching the union jack and what the soldiers, soldiers who find him don't realize is that he was not actually saving the flag, but rather desperately trying to surrender the colors to the uprising Afghan forces in order to save his own life. But the reason this is such a turning point is that he's considered a hero. And in England, he's got a reputation now of being the hero of Afghanistan, right? The one who actually survived and saved the Union Jack. And so he's got this glittering reputation. But when in fact he is a self-described scoundrel, a rake, just like the absolute worst human being, uh, worst representation of colonialist England from uh, the 19th century, uh, but delightfully so. You know, these are all comic romps. Uh, they are all following this kind of, you know, swaggering fellow. <laughs> and, and I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, Royal Flash, you know, kind of gets into like his cowardice, obviously, and uh, the fact that he's kind of like a uh, minor character in his own story. He's always being pushed kind of into these historical situations that he's in, but does not do justice to just just how awful the character is. Yes, and I'd say the movie Royal Flash isn't nearly as extreme as this book is. Nowhere near. Yeah, this book is extremely extreme. How extreme is it? On a scale of one to ten, with one being not very extreme and ten being extremely extreme, you know. The extreme bros from Harold and Kumar. You're not a. <laughs> you don't remember their little monologue. I give it a. I give it a eight point five. I forget what he what he gives it. Um, yeah. Shall we do our aperitif pairings with it? I feel like it's been so long since we've done a book since we had to to scrap the last book episode we did at the the request of the guest. We had to burn down the last book episode we did that I, I even forget the process for going through a book like this. It's true. It's true. Let's get into it. I'll, I'll start off. 
because this book, the first, it's cut up kind of into three parts. And the first part is all about cricket. And yes. we'll talk about that. So I kind of thought uh, an appropriate aperitif would be, hey, what great cricket stories are there out there? I have no <laughs> idea. So I did a little research. I came up with a few movies. Apparently everyone loves this movie, Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India from 2001. is kind of considered the, wow, I don't even know what the baseball equivalent would be, the field of dreams of cricket movies, <laughs> the major league of cricket movies. The for, the for love of the game. Well, those are two very different things, John. Field of dreams <laughs> no, and major no, league. I don't know which one to point. <laughs> you know the what movie? The rookie? You know what movie I was thinking about the other day? Major League Back to the Miners. I feel yeah. like that movie doesn't get made fun of enough. <laughs> it doesn't. It needs to be brought up more often. Scott Bakula. Oh, poor Back. Yeah. Oh well. It's not too. It's not terrible. Um, anyway, <laughs> every video, every video store going out of business always had like thirty copies of Major League Three: Back to the Miners. <laughs> yeah, trying to little, trying to do reliable. like crate digging at video stores, you had to wade through a sea. More copies than they had of Jerry Maguire of Major League Three: Back to the Miners. That's true. It was well stocked for sure. Uh, I did not end up going with Lagan though, or with Wondrous Oblivion. I didn't go with the Shout either, although I remember there being a rug, uh, a cricket match in there. What I ended up going up doing was watching a film from 1953 called The Final Test, which is directed by Anthony Asquith. It's got Jack Warner as a cricket player in his last test match, right? He's uh, going to be retiring. He has this son who is kind of this completely intolerable wannabe poet who doesn't care about cricket at all. And won't go to his father's last match. It's like his last time his father's going to be uh, in the game. And he doesn't even care because he wants to go meet this poet, <clears throat> this well-known poet played by Robert Morley. Uh, and of course, when he ends up missing his father's game and going to meet Robert Morley, Robert Morley won't come out and see him because he's watching the cricket game. He's a huge cricket fan. of course. <laughs> and he has this fantastic, when he finds out who this kid is and who his father is, he flips out and is like, we got to go to this game and gets him in his car and drives him back to the game. And on the way, uh, when he finds out that the son finds cricket frighteningly dull, he has this fantastic response, which is, but of course it's frighteningly, frighteningly dull. That's the whole point. Any <laughs> game could be exciting. Football, dirt trap racing, roulette. The measure of vast superiority of cricket over any other game is that it is strenuously refuses to cater to this boorish craving for excitement. <laughs> to go to cricket to be thrilled is as stupid as to go to a checkout play in search of melodrama. <laughs> and so it's just terrific that he becomes this like slovingly fan of uh, cricket, you know, after we've seen him be this kind of boorish bohemian poet. Uh, and they go to the game. I'm going to ruin the climax because it's, it's a fun movie. It's not a great movie. It's not one I really recommend everyone run out and see, but it has this fantastic sports climax, which is that the father gets thrown out. He does not get a hit. And everybody stands up and even the opponents stand up and cheer for him and run out into the field to celebrate his career as a cricketer. Everyone loves this guy. It is like a tear uh, wrenching moment. It's really fantastic. And I absolutely love it. There's a great moment, too, where Morley's sitting in the stands and there's an American who doesn't understand cricket. There's a whole setup at the beginning of the film where this American's like, what the hell is cricket? And it's six hours long and you have a lunch in between. Like, just like any of us would be like, what is cricket? <laughs> this American is sitting there watching Robert Morley get all upset at the uh, umps, at the uh, the refs, and suggests, like, why don't you shout at them? And Robert Morley, like, gives it thought, like, huh, I'd never thought of that. I should try that sometime. <laughs> So the final test, it's a, it's a fun movie. I, I didn't think there was a good cricket movie out there, but there's at least one that's, 
it's it's fun. It's, and, and Robert Morley does his Robert Morley thing, which is always entertaining. It's weird because you and I were just talking about the Yellow Rolls Royce, which you had never heard of, which is also directed by Anthony, Anthony Asquith. Asquith. Yes. Is that what is? Did that somehow put you on the trajectory to this movie, or just no, pure it's coincidence? Just a coincidence. I was just looking for a cricket movie, and this is the one I found. That's so strange that he would come up zero times in you know twenty five <laughs> years of us knowing each other, and then twice in one week. Very yes. odd. Sometimes you're like catching up with some of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> like George McDonald Frazier. My exactly. aperitif pairing is The Wind and the Lion uh, by John Milius. Uh, I, what? I'm a fan of that one. Yeah, I wanted to pick something from the same era. It's 1975. It's written and directed by John Milius. It's um, Sean Connery and Candace Bergen. It's based on a real historical event in which a um, Berber... Uh, revolutionary insurgent kidnapped uh, a woman named uh, Eden Pedcaris and um, sort of held her hostage to manipulate Theodore Roosevelt into getting involved in the uh, uh, uprising happening in in Morocco uh, and sort of involved and applied different international pressures. I will say a lot of the plot is me going, yeah, yeah, get to the battle scenes. This movie is just about Sean Connery being charming, is what this movie is about. It's about Sean Connery just being a magnetic leader of men and romancer of ladies, and John Milius being a little bit acidic. The reason I wanted to pick it is I think that a lot of people think of Milius as being cynical or critical, right? And he is uh, a critique of power, a critique of colonialism, uh, a critique. His his great interest is the difference between civilization and lack of civilization, between what that means, right? These are, are things he's very, very interested in. And I pick it because even with Milius being sort of like a notorious character for New Hollywood, he's one of the more out there guys this movie is so fucking mild compared to Flashman's Lady just two years later. And if you place it in the context of what was seen as being sort of like radical envelope pushing art at the time, not that Wind in the Lion has that reputation necessarily compared to some of other Milius's other works. But if you just place it next to one of like the Enfant Terribles movies of that same era, you see how fucking extreme this book is and how it's also interesting it's another like wind in the lion it's about a kidnapping where a sort of sophisticated woman is kidnapped by a uh, a a um uncivilized savage type somebody who who sort of straddles the line though between being the most sophisticated man she's ever met and a total barbarian right and and it plays on that same sort of line between civilization and not civilization. Uh, and it's also a critique of what it means to be civilized in a very conscious way. Flashman's lady, what it, what what history means, um, what are the the deeds of history viewed through a historical lens, you know, sort of right and wrong viewed through a historical lens versus and at the time lens, right? The contrast between how morality is perceived in its era and then how morality is perceived later. They both are interested in all of that. But uh, Flashman's Lady, and I really like Wind and Lion. I, you know, you can do a lot worse than Bergen and Connery just hanging out, being cool with each other, you know? Um, but like Flashman's Lady is just like 
10 times the fucking thing that Wind and the Lion is. It's just such, it's just this book is such a fucking thing, John, you know? Is it really you... is, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and so that that was my pairing to sort of put you in the mindset, put you in the themes of it, but just show how, you know, uh, almost like quaint something like that looks next to Flashman's Lady. Yeah, or something like The King and I, which is also something I kind of think of when I think of yeah. Wind and the Lion. It's funny that that came out the same year as as Royal Flash did, and also the same year as, um, uh, oh my God, Man Who Would Be King, which yeah. is, you know, uh, like the colonialist film where which Sean Connery is on the other side of, <laughs> and uh, and it seems just like it, to stand huge, you know, in that era, whereas Wind and the Lion is so much more quaint, you know, like almost a curiosity of that year. But it's a fun movie. It's a fun ride. Yeah, it's definitely an era, too, of just putting you in the mindset of when major entertainments were looking at the legacy of colonialism, because Flashman's Lady is definitely doing that. But it's so much more sly and intelligent and sort of wicked and acidic and brilliant. You know, this Mm. book really, uh, you know, I fucking love this book. I just (laughs) fucking loved it. Um, Yeah. And it's yeah. At any rate, we'll dig into it, but that's my my aperitif to lead us into it. Do you want to do you want to talk us through the plot of this, John? Because it has it has basically like three big chunks. Would you say four? Yeah, Depends definitely. on how you split up uh, uh, Singapore versus the uh, the uh, the the piracy. Oh, one thing. Yeah, I was going to say one thing we should mention before we get into it is we glossed over Tom Brown's school days. I don't know if um if uh. Uh, people are aware of this book. This was a really important book. It's like a, um, how do you describe it? It's like some preachy, prissy bullshit about what it means to be a good kid and listen to your teachers and be a good a good British boy and, and how to just embody the national spirit. It's really, uh, it's really uh, just drivel. It's just total yeah. drivel, but it was massively influential and important. It was it was it was a big hit book, and it's sort of like I don't even know what to compare it to. Like it's not even in the American spirit to have something so. Uh, it's not even treacle. That's not the right word, but just something so unashamedly about like the the goodness of the natural spirit of God and teacher and mom and dad and and friendship and the old boys at rugby. You know, just like yeah, yeah the upstanding you know, it's role shameless. Of yeah. yeah. And Flashman, Harry Flashman, is 100% the villain of the piece. I yeah. mean, he's the O'Doyle of this story, you know, where he's yes. everything morally wrong, you know, is supposed to be in Flashman, which is sort of the brilliance of McDonald Frazier. Turning him into a hero is that, you know, it's looking at everything from a perspective that you have never seen before. You and know, it's, it's also, this should part be of the your... huge appeal of this is that, you know, his contrast to the other characters, but we'll get into that. Yes, no, and it's a signal that this is a critique of the British sense of its national character. Uh, George MacDonald Fraser had Scottish parents, but he was he was born in England. Um, and and it really is, it's this this stuff, it's really it should be a tip-off that he's gonna make a hero out of oh, Doyle's perfect. He's definitely like a mash the hero's face, weakling buddy's face in the in the way to peas and you know, shove him down. He's that <laughs> yeah. kind of asshole. And uh, the privies kind of guy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. And that it's going to be a critique of that, that it's going to be a critique of that British sense of self, national character, right? And in the British Empire and colonialism and all of that, while at the same time um, being uh, wretchedly, unabashedly full of vile descriptions of people, places, racial slurs, bodies, women, intelligence. It's it, whatever, you know, the word is problematic. This 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 novel is a shotgun loaded up with problematic and shot into your face is what we this will movie definitely is. Definitely come back to that for <laughs> this, sure. That's this that's the elephant in the room we definitely got attack when I'd be interested to talk about it. Well I would say that it's that it's not um it's not like the Bond novels, which are famously having their problematic elements censored right now, very generously by the publishers. And I'm sure it's some dipshit in the Bond estate who wants the gravy train to keep rolling is like, yeah, change them up. That's yeah. what my great uncle would have wanted, you know, that kind yeah. of just so long as I make more money, you know, yeah, that, that yeah, kind of everyone. asshole. Yeah, that's the that's the funniest thing is to have people say, well, Ian Fleming would have been fine with it. Like, yeah, let me see a fucking signed piece of paper from Ian Fleming that he'd be fine with this. I kind of I, got a feeling he would. I, I have a feeling that he'd be fine with making more money. And some of those novels were changed within <laughs> his lifetime to have the the racial descriptions blunted in them, even within his lifetime. But um, but this book is not Fleming, is what I'm trying to say. Where I feel like Fleming is just trying to frequently describe things as he sees them personally as an author. This book is unquestionably trying to be in the mindset of a British colonial soldier of the era. It's unquestionably trying to embody that sense of the world and that sense of race and that sense of Africans and Chinese people and, you know, Spaniards and Middle Eastern people of trying to embody that. And it really is, it really isn't like, uh, a narrative that sprung a leak and is accidentally filling up with problematic material, which is sort of what happens in Fleming, I would say. This is he 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 loads up the cannon and shoots it directly in your face is what is what he's doing with it. Fleming's books reflect the author in yeah. a way that the Flashman books do not, you know. That they're a critique. Fraser. They're a yeah. critique. This exactly. book is a very savvy critique. But exactly, exactly. Um, and I listened, you know, our um, our favorite book bot podcast, Bad Books for Bad People, tackled a Flashman book last year. I hadn't listened to the episode until just now, just before we started recording, because I wanted to kind of have my own thoughts about Flashman before I, I listened to Kate and Jack talk about it. Um, but they hated it. They hated the Flashman book that they read, which was um, uh, Flash for Freedom, the third book. Yeah. Um, which seems even more loaded than this one in terms of like, you know, he's on a slave boat and then he becomes a plantation boss at one point in America. Clearly it's really going to be confronting you with some ugly stuff that I think yeah. if you're in the mindset of Kay, which to kind of paraphrase her, she said, you know, she understands the idea, but she's not really in the mood to read about a privileged white guy who gets away with whatever he wants, you know, and I can, I can understand that. And I would be hesitant to, to recommend the Flashman book to just anybody, you know, yeah. for the, that reason. But I think that you well, have especially to because I haven't read that one. But George MacDonald Frazier definitely hates America. <laughs> he is somebody who fucking has a palpable uh, UK British distaste for all things American, and I can imagine that he makes no effort to to portray everything, but in the lowest possible terms. Right, right, and 
if we're going to look through this book, you know, through quote unquote, 2023 eyes or whatever, it's like, you know, it's the same as looking at a stand-up comedian who's going to be talking about ugly stuff. And either, you know, if you're not in the mood to laugh at the uglier stuff, I can understand it's not your thing. And I think that this is what this book is. I don't agree with anyone who says these books have an ugly perspective. I think that, I mean, that the author has an ugly perspective when he wrote these books. He's very specifically engaging with that through this character. And, you know, at the same time, really looking at the hypocrisy of the British Empire, you know, throughout history, throughout the 19th century specifically. And I think that that's interesting. I think that's important. I think that's important to kind of like look at these things through a rakish fellow like uh, like our boy Flashman, you know, old Flashman. Um, so, well, let's, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's go through the plot. Let's go through through the, a little bit of the story so people can contextualize what's happening and what we're talking about. So we find Flashman here in 1843. And as I've said before, he is the hero of Afghanistan. So everyone, he's got a reputation. Everyone knows him. And he's approached by... The hero of Jahalabad. Yes. He's approached by his old school chum, Tom Brown. Uh, from Tom Bound School Days, which is makes it nice that we picked this one randomly. I think it's the only <laughs> yeah. one Tom Brown uh, appears in, but having knowing that background, it's funny that he pops up right away. And he is uh, invited to join a scratch team of old rugbyans uh, at Lords, which is a very prestigious venue uh, to uh, play against um, like a, a great team, like a team made up of like the greatest historical rugby players of the time, uh, which he can't uh, he can't turn down because it's such a Huge thing for him to play at Lords. He can't wait to do it. Uh, he practices by inventing brothel pr- cricket. <laughs> that was one of the lines that I that I wrote down was, I must set down the rules for brothel cricket someday. <laughs> uh, as he's floundering about, we should mention he is uh, married to a woman named Elspeth, who is uh, a, wo- a, Scot- a Scottish woman who he uh was forced into marrying through a shotgun wedding he was caught basically in the bushes with her by her uncle and forced to marry her so she is his uh dutiful blonde wife and we'll talk about it you know more going on but like their relationship in this book i think really is the key is like the center of this book for me i mean it's called flashman's lady obviously and you know her kidnapping sets everything going but like i think that his complicated relationship with this woman really makes the characters like that much more interesting that he yeah. like, clearly adores her and like considers her like an imbecile and an idiot and is calling her like the worst possible things <laughs> in his mind. And of course is, you know, cheating on her left and right and uh, uh, threatening disgrace to both of them and their entire family. But uh, it's again, we'll talk about some more. So he's married to Elspeth uh, and he goes and he, uh, John, you're missing. This is all her fault. <laughs> Sorry, God. <laughs> So he goes to Lords, he plays, he performs a hat trick at the game. He catches out Pilch, Felix, and Min, three of the greatest historical uh, cricketers of all time, uh, which he'll repeat throughout the novel, sort of like Al Bundy's four touchdowns in a single game <laughs> to everybody that it means absolutely nothing to, which is a delightful recurring joke. Um, and uh, and he's given it's the first hat trick, because that's what these books right, are full yes. of. They're full of historical figures they're a swashbuckler this book is a swashbuckler and it's like swashbucklers he comes in contact with real historical figures and he's given a hat by is it is it uh is it men that gives him the hat 
I think after, Felix, but it's one of them, yeah. Yeah, afterwards, uh, when he strikes all three of them out and gives them the hat and says, that was a nice trick you pulled, referencing that he is a little bit of dastardly business with getting all three of them out, a little bit of luck. And so it's meant as a semi-ironic gesture, but that's the first hat trick. Right, it's kind of the Marty history. McFly inventing rock and roll sort of thing that <laughs> happens here. Like, get it, get it, everybody? It's the first hat trick. It's, it's pretty fun. But I will say about this section of the book, uh, and everything I was, uh, you know, talking about watching the the movie, the cricket movie, knowing zero about cricket and not understanding its rules whatsoever, not getting its appeal even slightly. I think it really speaks to how great this is written. That like I found this stuff enthralling. I was really riveted by this section. I think he did a great job, like making me interested in what happens both in this game and in uh, the the follow up game that he has later on. He just, it's good writing, you know, like gets you into it. Great, great writer. Great yeah. fucking writer. Yeah, it's very rousing. When it wants to be rousing, uh, it's a very rousing book. Mm-hmm. So after the match, uh, he meets this guy, Don Solomon, right? And this guy is like a rich, uh, loaded uh, uh, fellow who is immediately struck by Elspeth and clearly is, is into her. What and... ethnicity is he? No, I'm just going to try and provoke you into saying <laughs> any of the terrible words that he says. Yeah, we'll skip and... some of those. We'll skip those. <laughs> it becomes hard to describe the characters because you only have his litany of various but because racial slurs and ethnic is a slurs. Little, because his ethnicity is a little confused at first on purpose because he's, you know, pretending to be someone he's not. Uh Flashman only kind of recognizes him as like not white, basically, like basically yeah. someone with like a darker complexion. I actually imagine Billy Zane in this role. I don't know if it's because I've been watching so many Billy Zane movies uh, on Wendy Mays' Twitch recently, but that's kind of like the <laughs> character thought, like an indeterminate ethnicity to this guy, you know? He needs curly hair. He needs, he needs, I don't know who would be a good choice for him, but he needs um, to have that. Billy Zane's had all sorts of wigs. <laughs> he could definitely pull off the curly hair. Which movie am I thinking of that he has the curly hair? Oh, Tombstone, he's got curly hair. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, who who, who sure. am I to argue with Tombstone? I'm nobody. <laughs> Nobody's who you are. Um, anyway, Don Solomon invites the Flashmans to join him. Uh, well, first to to his um, mass, his massive estate at Canterbury to come down because Flashman's going to keep, keep continue playing cricket uh, on the reg uh, in, the, in the area. So he says, oh, come down and, and, and look, stay, and in look. My, stay in my house. Flashman. He's a bowler, not a batter. Okay? Yes. It's, a, it's very big distinction. Go on. Yes. Um, so Flashman, after attending a hanging, which, you know, <laughs> speaks to the kind of guy he is when he's by himself, he enjoys a good hanging like any like the next chap. Uh, they, they go down to Canterbury. And while they're there, Don Solomon proposes a... Uh, well, first, first he, he invites them to travel the world with them in his steamship, which Flashman immediately, correctly... Uh, you know, surmises as him trying to woo Elspeth to him. And it should be uh, mentioned that El- that Elspeth is, seems to be, if you read between the lines, that uh, Flashman sort of um, believes that, that Elspeth doesn't suspect him of not being faithful at all, right? 
uh, that she's being as unfaithful as him. If you read between the lines is that he thinks, oh, there's no way she's actually being unfaithful. Sure, she'd love it. And she loves the male attention and I bet she fucks around, but he doesn't seem to really believe it. She seems to have sort of the same attitude of, of course the ladies love Harry, but I, I doubt he's actually cheating on me. Meanwhile, they're both, the, every indication that they both are just getting rogered by everyone <laughs> under the sun. Rogering and getting rogered. Rogered. For sure. And these chapters end with little excerpts from Elizabeth's Elspeth's diary, which are kind of delightful and also sort of. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say we should mention when as we go through the plot, this is this this book becomes very um, postmodern in its approach. It sort of has four layers of commentary on it. It proposes to be a series from the Flashman papers, which George made papers, uh, diaries that were given to George MacDonald Frazier, right? And he presents them without commentary, except in footnotes. There's a series of extensive footnotes in this book and appendices at the end. There's three appendices and a bunch of footnotes on this book, right? Uh, and those are written by George MacDonald Frazier as, hey, I'm George MacDonald Frazier. Here's my footnotes commenting on the diaries I got from Flashman, from old Flashy, who was definitely a real guy. There's diary excerpts at the end of each chapter, right? And those diary experts are also footnoted from Elspeth's diary, right? Um, Elspeth's diary at the end of each chapter. And those have been edited and have brief commentaries on them from Elspeth's sister, Flashman's uh, sister-in-law, who is a prissy sort of prim proper type. She's also the one we're told by Frazier who's gone through and edited out any blasphemies in Flashman's papers uh, where he says like bloody or damned or Christ or Jesus and things like that have been edited out while leaving um, uh, a huge amount of other offensive material in and so <laughs> you more offense yeah so you have these excessive footnotes the diary excerpts the commentary and i would say the footnotes are so much it's sort of like oh this is like pale fire if i actually wanted to read it if it didn't actually become <laughs> irritating to read halfway through you know <laughs> grizzle day rothschild is the name of the sister who is uh <laughs> going through the perfect perfect naming of this character but it is but the reason this is in here is i think that it's to show how history is being revised the moment it's written and how there's always censors and people stepping in the way and offering their own perspective that's how you can't accuse it of being the author's perspective he's, he's very conscious to give multiple perspectives and his own footnotes tend to be factual corrections or factual commentary like what Flashman says here matches up with recorded history. What Flashman says here doesn't match up with recorded history, although he might have been thinking of this, you know, right. that this kind of couldn't thing. have died at this battle because he was present at such battle. And yeah, here are some sources that co uh, corroborate the material. Here's the people. So it's very interesting as as a um, historical record as well, that it has these sort of four layers of commentary all existing on top of each other and interacting with each other in a way that is clearly designed to make you think about perspective and truth and the relationship of perspective to history. It's very clearly designed to make you think about those things and to make you think about why are racial slurs acceptable to be left in, but bloody and damned have to be cut out. You know, that yeah. it's 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 a commentary on those things. 
You know, it's very self-consciously about this stuff. Sorry to interrupt, but it's no, but no, it's, no, that's fine. It also it's a critique. A... Uh, it's a critique of the form. It, it in and of itself, it reflects on the form. Yeah, and it also serves as like a victory lap for McDonald Fraser doing all this dogged uh, research for these novels, obviously, <laughs> and and help for us guys who don't know anything about you know yeah. James Brooke and uh, Ranavalona and everything. It's like. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for appreciating. You know, this is somewhere if you want to read more about the history of Madagascar, here's a good place to look. So <laughs> it's it's got all sorts of things. Anyway, anyway, we go back to Canterbury where uh, Don Solomon says, come out with me, my steamship. We're going to I'll travel around. I'll show you my estates, my various estates, and we'll we'll see different parts of the world. And uh, Flashman is completely uninterested in going and but sees that Elspeth is going to be seduced away from him. So he you know, forbids her to go. So Don Solomon proposes a private single wicket match between himself and Flashman. And if he wins, if Don Solomon wins, they Elspeth can, will go with him. Flashman uh, obviously thinks he can school this guy. He's never seen him cr play cricket before and he's in top form. Uh, he also is being uh, dogged by this bookie. Daedalus Ty. Daedalus Tej, who is Esquire. Who clearly would be played by Bob Hoskins? I wish they made this movie <laughs> after Royal Flash. He would be perfect fit for him. Uh, who is this, you know, lowly bookie who has been betting on his cricket matches and sending him little cash gifts that Flashman has pocketed? That's the great character Flashman. He refuses to acknowledge them, but he will pocket the money. Yes, <laughs> he still take them. He's he gives it a great. Why I never? Well, what am I going to do? Throw it in the trash? <laughs> He's accepting the money, even while refusing to acknowledge it in any way. So uh, Teach, you know, approaches him and says, I want to bet on the. I want you to take a fall on this because because if I bet a thousand dollars against you and you lose, I'm going to be, you know, filthy rich and I'll give you a little bit of it. And another great trait of Flashman is that he uh, says he's more offended by the fact that he doesn't come up and let him know how much his cut would be. <laughs> rather than being told to to, uh, to throw the match. So he has these, this double reason to lose uh, or to, to not want to lose because he's going to be like threatened by Daedalus Tej and also that his wife will be taken away. And in this hilarious kind of uh, his conscious is kind of like, you know, going back and forth during the match itself. And he comes to a point where he's kind of deciding he's going to throw it, but then decides he can't throw it because the guy is such a bad bowler. He really can't orchestrate <laughs> a way to make it look convincing that he would uh, lose this match. But he ends up getting hit in the head by the bowl after he's already cheated. It should be mentioned. He's already cheated once. Yes. Uh, and then this other guy cheats by hitting him and then uh, hitting his wicket while he's unconscious. Again, I don't really understand what that means, but, when, but essentially tying the match which doubly damns Flashman because um, because he's already given him the tie. He told Don Solomon, if it's a tie, you win. So he wins the match. He's allowed to take Espeth with and him. And it doesn't but help with the bookie. It doesn't help with the bookie because he didn't win. That's what he bet on. So <laughs> he's being threatened by Tej. He's also being threatened by the Duke whose wife he is, Rogered, in the home. <laughs> And so he decides the best the best and, thing to do here and is Solomon to go has him. has seen him rogering the Duke's wife. He's walked in on them. Don Solomon is such a funny fucking character in this book because he, he's revealed later on to be a pirate and a kidnapper. And you know, everyone's talking about him like he's this notorious, horrible criminal. But all we really see of him is this guy who who falls in love with a woman, sees that her husband's a piece of shit. And wants to like 
take her away from him and like you well know, it's a it's her. a it's a genuine swashbucker yeah. a secretly noble <laughs> private say a secretly noble pirate saving a proper woman from the scum of the civilized world for the sake of true love that's what a swashbuckler is this guy's captain blood <laughs> he is this guy There's is jo- of, is johnny captain bloods johnny spanish main whatever that character's name is <laughs> Yeah, these other characters who are really noble heroes who would be the lead character of any, you know, regular swashbuckler are, you know, <laughs> here forced to, you know, come under the scorn of one Harry Flashman. Oh, who, flashy. Who just hates everybody else in this book. So that kind of ends the first third of the book, you know, this time in England. Uh, they they head off in, in the steamship because he decides, you know, fleeing England, fleeing England is the best best option for him. Plus, he can keep, you know, an eye on Elspeth and make sure no nothing happens with the, with old Don Solomon. And they all end up in Singapore, which is where, uh, which basically is where Don Solomon decides to abscond with Elspeth, take her and run away after Flashman is almost um, murdered by some masked men in the street he goes to go to a brothel to a nice mm-hmm. brothel and he gets taken out this is the old brothel setup uh where he's going to go out with the prostitute in a carriage somewhere and uh instead of arriving at her house to or wherever they're supposed to be going to actually fuck he's let out and there's assassins who are going to rob him and kill him and he's almost killed by their poison uh by their hatchets but uh he saved who's he saved by john He's saved by Sir James Brooke, the white Rajah of Sarawak, the quote-unquote noblest, whitest man in the whole wide world, <laughs> um, who is, uh, you know, a very, not, not super well-known, but a very, very well, very well-documented historical figure, uh, who was the model for Lord Jim, the Conrad novel. Errol Flynn was supposed to star in a movie called The White Rajah based on him that ended up not, ended up not happening. But he is just a classic swashbuckling real life swashbuckling hero he was a a pirate buster a pirate hunter who you know kept the waters uh borneo safe basically by attacking pirate forts and uh defending against pirate attacks so he was like a real like legit historical hero yeah and he was a colonial figure but he was beloved because the people that the slavers and the pirates would prey on because again the south the south seas pirates were very different than the caribbean pirates for quick reminder caribbean pirates were mainly um a mix of escaped slaves themselves and people preying on the imperial colonial ships uh, that's mainly who the pirates were, as it was sort of they were going after the colonial powers and were frequently escaped slaves themselves. South Seas pirates were almost all blackbirders and slavers. Those were people that would show up and enslave local populations and take them under, even though they were themselves locals. And so James Brooks sort of cleaning them up, very beloved by the local yeah. populations, very, very beloved historical figure for the local populations there, even though he was at the same time a colonial figure. And that's sort of how he had come to power was just by being so beloved. It's essentially like, you're so great, white yeah. man, we'll make you your king, you know, our king, which is like well, actually what know, happened. <laughs> we know so many Conrad-esque stories of, you know, the white man sailing off, you know, with good intentions and then going wrong, you know, being corrupted and, you know, becoming this... Uh, uh, this deranged sovereign of, you know, the the local people, wherever he ends up. And Brooke is like the, the good version of that, where it's like, yeah, he sailed off, <laughs> became a governor of like a whole, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a whole country, but it's a whole area of a country at least. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh and like you know legitimately try to like clean it up and like be like a and like sheriff it and, and protect it so it's kind of interesting but as presented here i i couldn't stop laughing i thought it was the funniest oh my god it's where he great. is just he, he is he just he won't shut up about like his own philosophy his heroic philosophy and his uh, he's his so good natured so christian so boyishly charming <laughs> and of course flashman just hates his guts flashman <laughs> it should be pointed out by flashman's own account flashman is a coward and a and a, and a, and a liar and all of these kind of things flashman's own account of himself is that like he's just somebody who wants to you know go have a drink and fuck a whore right that's that is flashman's vision of himself he flashman has two is descriptions not... of himself that i think are, are going to bring up here he says he has a god-given talent for horses languages and fornication <laughs> and the other thing he is a self-described scoundrel with no proper feelings <laughs> <laughs> and so he of course just hates just hates uh, 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 James Brooke. And it's and it's like when he meets Tom Brown at the beginning of the book, Tom Brown is like, oh, I have totally had you wrong. You're the you're the hero of Jahalabad. You are one of this famous war hero. We love you so much. Come play cricket with us. I had just read you so wrong. And he's another pious type and he's getting tears in his eye. And Flashman is pretending to be nice until he gets the cricket agreement in place. And then he's like, hey, I'm going to go sleep with a prostitute. Yeah, I'll be, sh- I'll be sure to fuck one for you and tom brown is just so sad he's like i should have known you were a liar i should have known that you were not reformed well james brooke does not have that perspective he (laughs) thinks that flash he looks at flashman as this poor guy who is so sad that her his his wife has been kidnapped and taken away by this uh, infamous pirate whereas flashman is really more like doesn't want to go and get in, in danger. No, exactly. Anything. He's not James really Brooke sad. is like, we'll follow him up the river. We'll go save your wife. I know you're raring to go as a soldier and a war hero. <laughs> and meanwhile, Flashman's like, I keep, I kept hoping he would like, let me go or we wouldn't find her right away. So I could head back to Singapore and put out a couple uh ransom rewards for it. Put, put sort of wanted <laughs> posters and let everybody do their thing and go back to England. Even like, the idea where he's like, listen, I know you're worried that he's having his way with her, but like, don't worry, we're going to get her. And Flashman's perspective, secret perspective is like, well, I've had sex with her, so who cares if she's being <laughs> raped or not? <laughs> it's like, oh this my book, God, this guy. We sh- okay, so what I want to say is that before we go more, because we're laughing at a lot of stuff, this book, horrible stuff, and this book is funny. It's a picaresque right? That's mm. what this book is. And with picaresque, the word, I always assumed that that it was a reference to sort of like their sort of wide ranging episodic novels that cover a, bo- a lot of ground, both, you know, literal ground on like horseback and walking and landscapes. But uh, but also, you know, figuratively, a lot happens in picaresque. There are a lot of different sort of tales and stories together. They're almost travelogues, but story-wise as well, they're, they cover a lot of ground. Um, and so I assumed picaresque had something to do with the fact that they were like episodic travel logs essentially (laughs) but it's not um because you can't because you can't have like a picaresque be like a one room one act play it's not a picaresque anymore that it can't be just like two guys in a hotel room it's not a picaresque at this point but picaresque refers to picaro which is a word that means rascal or scoundrel um and looking into the word from its usage and uh uh, it really seems to be more slangy and mean something more like shithead or asshole is really what 
Picaro means. Um, and so these novels, picaresques, are about charming assholes, right? They're they're Absolutely. essentially like shithead novels, right? <laughs> is what they are. And so you might understand why I identify and love this genre so much. Um, <laughs> but that's what they are. This is a picaresque character, right? And and he's a particularly a lot of picaresques, if it's not their main character, feature prominently a character who's just unfettered id, who just makes no attempt to regulate his id and his desires and his vices and his appetites, right? And I I just love the unfettered id character. Anytime there's an unfettered id character in a movie or a book or a TV show, I just fucking love it. I love the Picaro of the Picaresque, right? Um, just that I like, there's something about characters with huge appetites and lust with absolutely no moral compass that I just, I can't get enough of them. I just think they're delightful. I think they're yeah. absolutely delightful. Pantagruel. The, re the rebellion scoundrel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jacques Le Fay de Liste, a Beaumarchais de Scoundrel, Lazero de Tormes, Roger on American Dad. Roger on American Dad is a very yes. picaresque type <laughs> character. Pantagruel, all of those. But what's important to remember about a um, Picaro is that novels... Uh, at their most novelistic, certainly I agree with Milan Kundera and and um, Cervantes that the the discovery of the novel is that it's an amoral space, not an immoral space, but a space where moral judgment is suspended. And what Kundera says is that in a novel, in Anna Karenina, right, both Anna and Vronsky have a right to be understood. That's what defines it, is you as a reader can judge them however you want, but that's not the novel's business. The novel is attempting to present humanity uh, in all of its characters with a right to be understood, right? Not to be judged, but to be understood. That's the discovery of the novel. That's, that's I think, you know, the enlightenment happens right after the novel's invented, like, you know, a century later. And I really do think the discovery of the novel leads to the enlightenment. I do think that this is a particularly Western discovery. I think it, it's tied so inexorably to Western civilization, the novel. And I do think it's a, it's a framework and way of looking at the world and way of, of understanding reality. And very quickly, novelists realize that the Picaro and the Picaresque, this is an amoral space. So it's very fun to push it by having an immoral character in an amoral space, right? And have them be understood and be looked at in a way that's not judgmentally, right? Like this book doesn't exist for you to judge Harry Flashman and be like, he's bad, bad, bad. Don't you know he's bad, bad? Of course he's bad. He's the of worst. He is. He's <laughs> the course. worst. He's literally the worst, but that's not how novelistic space functions, right? And so when novelists realize that there's a, a great deal of fun to be had there, but it's also very incisive about morality and how morality is created, exists, and functions in society on top of it too. Only when you have that sort of experimental amoral space, like you can study it in a vacuum in some way. You can study what it means to be immoral by looking clearly at immorality and it's one of the few spaces in all of the world frameworks for understanding the world in which 
when you encounter a character like this, you have a duty as a human being, if you encounter them in reality, to fucking judge them, right? <laughs> you have that You have that duty in reality to be like, this guy sucks, right? In a book, since you don't have that duty, you can see the fun of it more and understand the appeal of immorality, understand the appeal of it, and, and that how the id functions, how when you release the id, sort of the the intoxicating seduction of that, right? How that mindset and immorality seduces people. It's not that they're bad with black hearts, right? When you see a character like this, you can see it much more clearly, right? Um, and it's And it's just, you know, it can be entertaining because it is a story and not reality. By creating the unreality, we can see ourselves in the id that we necessarily need to suppress in all of our other dealings, right? We all have an id that wants to roger and eat and run away from war <laughs> and confrontation and, you know, cheat on our wives and call our friends fucking idiots and, you know, just do all of those things that we suppress in real life, right? We can see in the unfettered id character in the Picaro, we can see ourselves in that character because it's in an amoral space. We can look at the thing that we must necessarily suppress doesn't have to be suppressed. So we can look at it, right? We can see ourselves the worst and strangest and most unpredictable and most repressed aspects of ourselves we can look at and consider in this amoral space because we're not required to pass judgment on ourselves in this space either. We're not required to pass judgment on our feelings, right? We can we can examine it more clearly because the novel removes the veil of moral judgment from in front of it. It allows it to be pulled out of the way so we can see it more clearly and understand it more clearly. And that's what fucking Flashman is, right? Not to not to talk too much about all of this, not to go on it too much, but when reading it, it's the kind of book that just in the context of what's happening with Roald Dahl and Fleming and the sensitivity readers and R.L. Stein and all of that, that why, you know, there's a very common response of, oh, you want to, to read all of these, these bad words, you must be a bad person. And it's like, who wants to read that stuff anyway is definitely the sort of hectoring tone from all of these, you know, teachers and quote unquote artists who clearly don't understand anything about art or teaching, you know, they love that hectoring tone. And the answer is all that I'm getting into with right there, which is, this is sort of how the art functions and what this sort of stuff functions in, yeah. but definitely. Yeah. Book with the, 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 the picaresque hero, right? Yeah. And this is just from my own reading of the books. I haven't really, you know, yeah. read much about like analysis of picaresque you know, well, neither have I. Yeah, but I'm just saying like, my own <laughs> my own take from it is that um, these characters are removed from the narrative in an interesting way. You know, where yeah. it's like, you know, they are, we are engaging in their perspective of things. They are not doing things that we have to either get behind or disapprove of. They are really an observer in this world. And I think that Flashman being a coward, <laughs> being someone who <laughs> in the battles that he fights with Brooke is like, cringing on you know inside the spy boat you know while like the cannons are going on he off. runs and hides praying, in the room with the harem praying 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 to survive and not actually trying to help win any of these battles he's here's so the, here, he's so scared that quote. he gets horny and fucks a woman during we'll one get of the to battles that. <laughs> we'll get to that uh the objective quote here is that's what you young chaps have got to remember when you run run full speed with never a thought for anything <laughs> else don't look or listen or dither even for an instant 
Let Terra have his way, for he's the best friend you've got. Flashman has no interest in saving his wife from this pirate. He is all <laughs> self-preservation. He is all just like concern for himself. And again, that's something that, you know, in any of these books, whether it's, you know, the um, the servant in uh, Jacques the Fatalist, Fiedl- uh, you know, yeah. someone who has Jacques. Like, a, a that one Jacques. <laughs> his name would be Jacques, right? Jacques, his master. <laughs> um, Jacques, you know, having like, you know, all these these things that they come upon, these stories that they hear, they're not the main drive of the narrative. You know, they are engaging with these stories and it's their observation that we're kind of appreciating about the story. So I think with that remove, I think that remove is important because it doesn't ask you to like follow along the character and their actions. It asks you to engage with their thoughts, you know, yeah, and kind of see those actions through those thoughts, which is what makes them interesting. See, see the world through their eyes. A lot of the time, no question about that. I yeah, was just I going to no coincidence that there's a segment in Canterbury, you know, I mean, going all the way back to Chaucer, you know, like fart jokes come from like these books, you know, like there's definitely a lot of risque humor that, you know, we find the Flashman books that, you know, comes from books decades older. Yeah. And I was just going to to say just my, my <laughs> final thought on it was that I really personally feel like in the world, in reality, the most dangerous people Uh, It's not even necessarily that they're ideologues. There's a kind of reader who refuses to see their own shittiness and shitty characters, right? And I find those people to be very dangerous. The people who say, I'm nothing like that about people that are very, very human and characters that are very, very shitty, you know, because I just think it's, it's not that it's hypocritical. I think it's delusional. I think that they're so deluded about the shittiness of humanity and the shitty aspects of existence and our personalities and our human desires that they refuse to acknowledge the way it's manifesting in themselves. Those people tend to be very, very dangerous. And I think that getting rid of art that appeals to the worst of us doesn't get rid of that part of us, but it does reduce our ability to critique and reflect on it is really what I think. And I think that you got to sort of, if you can't see any of yourself in any character in this book, then I think you're a dangerous person. I genuinely do. I genuinely do. You know, I think that what McDonald Frazier gives himself is a person like Sir James Brooke who seems, you know, 100% noble, 100% heroic, and with nothing but concern for everyone else, you know, for like protecting and like saving other people. So much so that he even like has soliloquies about like, I don't know, am I, am I talking too much about myself being heroic? You know, (laughs) is this in my own self-interest? He like actually struggles with like, am I too heroic? You know, yeah, which makes Flashman even more disgusted. But I think he gives himself this challenge of having such an unimpeachable character, how could he make this character look ridiculous? And the answer is you put Flashman in the room with him and have him <laughs> having to listen to everything and be like this fucking guy constantly, you know, just like unbelieving, like how full of hot air a character like this is and, you know, how these heroics are ultimately, you know, we don't really kind of think about it too much until after it's all over after their uh, campaign against the pirates has ended. But the idea that, like, he's really just using this excuse that, you know, he's kidnapped this woman and run away as an excuse to go and kill some pirates, you know, to, like, go into the river and smash some forts and and 
bring war on these people. Yeah, and he gets his friends killed and he makes them all dress up for that big dinner before the big fight. They all have to get up and fancy their fanciest (laughs) naval dress and sing songs with them. He's making them all sing songs to like get roused up for it. And it's like, this person is deranged. You know, this person, this person, you can't live like that. It's everybody around him. His his boonest companions are all like, Jesus Christ, you know, and yeah, I think like that there is something one, yeah, they stop at one point, like, I guess it's supposed to be Sarawak and he's like governing, like as they're like sitting there planning, they're like right on the pirates. And he's just like, how do you do this? How do you govern a whole country <laughs> and then go off and like be, be a hero and murder people? Like, how do you like juggle all of this? And what Flashman decides is this guy's psychotic. <laughs> Yeah, and that and that being around people who are relentlessly moral and relentless moralism is exhausting. It's exhausting and terrifying and that you wouldn't want to actually be around good people all day yeah. because it becomes almost inhuman. It becomes deranged seeming. You know, Brooke Brooke who's both likable both the most likable and the most ridiculous character in the novel by far, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And she also mentioned just like the cricket when, you know, they're engaged in fighting and attacking. It's just as fun as Sabatini. I mean, it's it's really yeah. well written action. It's so much fun when they're storming the fort. And when Flashman ends up accidentally <laughs> having sex with one of this pirate's harem, it, it just comes so naturally to like what's happening that you just kind of go with it. And it's like, I can't even like pass judgment <laughs> on what's happening here. Because it's so absurd, you know, like the freaking walls literally coming down around him. People they're they're hiding right. they're hiding from the soldiers and the pirates, and they're so scared that they somehow end up rogering. <laughs> it's it's wild. It's wild sequence. So, uh, so they go after Don Solomon, and Don Solomon is the other character who I've already mentioned is like comes off as is the villain as the bad guy, but like he's actually fine. You know, he's like this pirate of the Borneo coast. So he's been living, you know, the secret life, setting himself up to be like a noble in England. He doesn't actually have all these estates he talks about, but he's got all this money, obviously, from like looting and pirating and stuff like that. But like his whole arc is that he's like wants to get this woman away from her horrible husband. And it turns out he didn't even send the assassins after uh, after Flashman (laughs) in Singapore. Like he wasn't even behind that. It turns out he was just an idiot who went to a brothel. And was going to get killed by the locals. Which sets us up for the next portion, the final portion of the book, which is that Flashman decides, like, he's got to escape. Like, he he uh, ends up, you know, on Don Solomon's ship after the um, after there's this big ambush and all these people are killed on the river on the uh, Batang Lupar. Flashman somehow survives miraculously. A lot of deus ex machinas in uh, Flashman's life, I will say. But he ends up on Don Solomon's ship. Don Solomon is so convinced that Elspeth will pick him over Flashman that he literally brings her into the room. She runs into Flashman's arms. She's all over him and they make love. And Don Solomon sees that it's completely, you know, it's hopeless. So she loves this scoundrel that there's no way to like talk her out of it. He essentially decides, all right, I'm just going to drop these two off. And Flashman is convinced. Otherwise, he still sees Don Solomon as such a villain that he decides to jump off the ship and swim to land to escape. And it, his misunderstanding where they are, it turns out they're in Madagascar and that by jumping up the ship and swimming to land, he is essentially a castaway. And by um, 
Magony's uh, law, he basically belongs now to the queen of Madagascar as a slave. And uh, tell us about the queen, Ranavalona the first, John, because this part of this section of the book is genuinely harrowing. <laughs> it is. This is where I've saved most of my. Let me let me try to like defend my my love of this book a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah. Well, she... but it's fa- we can talk about that because it's fascinating when yeah, this book is written is. and what the historical record is. Yeah, Ranavalona is the queen. She is historically thought of as this despot who. Uh, you know, executed her own people, you know, was just bathing in the blood of her own people. And Madagascar is very specifically set up as like completely isolated from the rest of the world. She doesn't trust Europeans. She doesn't trust outsiders. Anyone She's in fact kicked them there, out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who ends up there basically becomes either is killed or becomes enslaved. It becomes one of her uh, subjects. Um, and Flashman is worried about what's going to happen to him when he is presented to her. He doesn't know what his fate is going to be. But it's Flashman, so <laughs> so she she wants him. That's just the Flashman charm right there. Um, it's funny because you know I had said before after Royal Flash, like I wish they had made two or three more Flashman movies with Malcolm McDowell. He really seemed like the perfect casting to me to play this character. And I was wondering, like he could have at least done some audio books, you know, like done he'd be perfect. Like re- I just saw his had his voice in my head. I don't know if the earlier books. Are that reflective, or if McDonald Fraser just like after Royal Flash is like it's McDonald's, it's, it's McDowell, so I'm going to like have that in there. But after you know what? reading he... this and and seeing all the racial stories, yeah. I was like, no wonder he didn't want to do the audiobooks. <laughs> but uh, but I would say that um, it's actually I I don't it's weird I don't necessarily find him um. Uh, perfect casting for it reading the book he's supposed to he gets uh, away a lot more with being like huge strapping looking the part kind of guy and i was actually thinking oh you know what's funny who i was thinking of although the accent's so wrong is robert shaw would be a very good flashman <laughs> from cross swords another one that we talked about on the uh, yeah, or, sorry, from Swashbuckler, another one that we talked about on the uh, on the Swishbucklers episode, and that that kind of like big strapping dude, he's got that kind of of quality to him, you know that that there's something about just everybody looks at him and he he looks the part of the soldier, and he looks like the kind of guy that like you know a ravenous sexually ravenous <laughs> queen is like I want a bite of that. You know, <laughs> I'll give you the sexually ravenous, but I can't see Shaw being a coward, you know, the way I can McDowell. But I think that's part of the joke is that he's supposed to look the part, but then he is a coward about it. Although, yeah. you know, he's so good in Royal Flash and feels so perfect in Royal Flash that that, you know, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't complain. I just think it's slightly different what the character is. I think am I doing the they can't Tom Cruise can't be Jack Reacher thing. Is that what I'm doing here? Because he's not tall enough. <laughs> No, I see what you're saying, but like I don't know, McDowell just has the charm that can quickly turn, you know, to cowardice that like just I think works so well. And I can see McDowell charming the Queen of Madagascar in this scene, you know. Not not because he's a big strapping guy, but just because it's Malcolm McDowell, man, you know. My mom loves Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> it's also there's something about Roger Robert Shaw where when he's just sitting there thinking, people are constantly projecting noble tough guy thoughts onto flashmen 
And that like when you sit at Malcolm McDowell sitting there looking you know, like worried, you don't necessarily project like, ah, oh, this guy's thinking about how to save his wife. You know, he's worried about her being ravished <laughs> yeah. in a way that just like somebody like Robert Shaw being huge and strapping gets projected onto him. You know, that's like, I mean, I'm really not complaining about McDowell and Royal Flash at all. I think he's fantastic. I think he's good casting for the character. But uh, I was just uh, giving he's... it also a slightly different perspective having read the book. I get it, but I think internally Malcolm McDowell is perfect. <laughs> Reading in his voice was just like perfect. And so as a castaway, what happens to him on the Isle of Madagascar? So he becomes the Queen's Stallion and Tetra. <laughs> um, and also she uh, she puts him in a position since he is a decorated officer. He She puts him in charge of the army, basically. The Madagascar army, which is really just a role that um, a drill sergeant, more or less. He's just kind of having them do a bunch of standard maneuvers and uh, not really contributing, <laughs> I think, anything to the the shaping of this military force. But Elspeth has also ended up on the island. They've taken her off the boat because he's mentioned her, but they put her in hiding with uh, the queen's son, who it's set up as like a much more the prince. He's much more moral character, and in fact, is you know kind of talks her down you know, from her mur murderous rages. So he is hiding Elspeth and Flashman has been told once you're in Madagascar, you don't get out, you know, there's no escape. So he is kind of trying to figure out like what to do, but God bless her. Elspeth is so naive as to what's going on. <laughs> she does not understand that they are there for life, that they are slaves and that they're there against their will and, and cannot escape. She keeps talking about when, when, when we leave. You know, yeah, a horribly home. bloodthirsty regime where people are being uh, held above pits on ropes to cut and falling to their death, being boiled alive slowly, this kind of thing that they're doing the, uh, what is it called? Tan tanguin? What is the? The, tang the, the tanguin, yep. That the, they're uh, doing the tanguin, that that these sort of things are all happening there. Her notebooks are apparently filled with like descriptions of birds and monkeys when Flashman <laughs> later sees them, her her journals. She's she's living the high life among this, <laughs> this society. Of the special um, guest of the prince. Right. Who she's being stashed with, because if the, the queen found out about her existence, she'd immediately be have her limbs cut off and sewn up in a buffalo sack and left to hang from a tree exactly. die inside of it with her right. head sticking out. But it's funny because we, you know, it's this part of the book that really kind of brings the back, the elephant in the room of like, you know uh, this is like, you know, the white man's plight, you know, the white man among like this, these uh, struggling people. And like, I had to think about like, why does something like the last King of Scotland, you know, where the happy ending is like the white man survives to me seem offensive compared to like something like this, where it's like, you're rooting for Flash. He's the lead character. You want him to get away. Why is it different, you know? And one of the reasons I was thinking about, and again, listening to the the Bad Books for Bad People episode, which where they talked, the book they talked about, Flash for Freedom, uh, is set in uh, uh, Damani, right? And deals specifically with the uh, Ajoy, the fun all female military regiment of the yes kingdom. the 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 woman king is that yes. what the name of that movie is that's the name of that movie with those fucking people and that's the reason that's the reason right there is that like historical perspective is so much more warped when it's phony when it's completely yeah. false when you take you know a group of people who were slavers who would literally attack 
towns, villages, and enslave the people there and turn them into, you know, people fighting for freedom, you know, freedom yeah. fighters liberating, you know, the other slaves. They fought like, the French. Like, that's disgusting. Even when England had, you know, outlawed slavery, these people were still, you know, doing their thing, you know, and being horrible. They and- they refused to stop slavery, the, the Dahomey, because until, I believe it was palm oil, they worked out a treaty that was like... England will buy the amount of palm oil equal to the amount of money they make in slave in the slave trade. And mm-hmm. that was the only reason they, they shut it down. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff is so disgustingly hypocritical, you know, to make, to pretend like they were the heroes when in fact they were the worst villains. Yeah. That having like a more, a perspective that's more like Flash is this coward who's trying to get out of this situation. Doesn't actually care about like changing uh, the country for the better yeah. when he's you know roped into this plot to depose the queen he doesn't he doesn't want to do it you know he doesn't have any stake in that he doesn't care about people being tortured really and... it's it's only the son who seems to be motivated by good things the frenchman who's assisting with the plot is only doing it because he doesn't want england to get control of madagascar yeah yeah and uh when the english and the french show up later too and the idea is like they can you know again we, we mentioned flashman's quote about like they got into it to save us. And it's like, no, they didn't. They were, you know, or or specifically with the plot where they said uh, England and, and France are going to attack us because they are um, because we, we've enslaved so many of their people and we've attacked their ships and things like that. And it's like, uh, it's definitely they're not definitely not going to get involved unless they have some stake in it. There's definitely some kind of economic advantage to invading Madagascar for the English and the French which I think yeah. comes up in the footnotes a little bit. Well, that's that raid, which is based on a real raid, was based on that the, uh, uh, as we mentioned, the castaways, if you were a castaway, if you were shipwrecked, you'd get enslaved mm-hmm. uh, as as the rule. And there had been a white shipmaster who was British who had been enslaved, and they had sort of been enslaving white people there. Uh, and this was a little bit of a, a kickback on that. And she had been very anti-colonial. It's we need to talk about Rana Valona. And it's interesting that this book is written in 77. This queen, Rana Valona, uh, was for almost all of existence seen as being one of the most um, genocidal maniacs who ever ruled a country. Madagascar mm-hmm. had a population of 5 million when she took over. It was down to 2.5 million at the end of her reign, and she lived to be 83. And she was very capriciously into mass slaughters. She seems to have been an incredible drunk. There's so many stories that are about her signing treaties when she's drunk and making various orders when she's drunk and not remembering doing it. Perhaps apocryphal stories about when she like commissioned a giant pair of scissors for the palace to snip invaders in half and all of these sort of insane things. One thing that's very much a matter of record is that she did wholesale slaughter her own people and she made a lot of her decisions based on she she worshipped a couple uh, like household items, like a horn and a bottle, uh, and she took to them for decisions. She would like mutter to herself and mumble with them all the time famously. But she'd also do this thing called the Tanguine Test, which well, is where it appears in the book too, we should mention. Yes. Well, it's real well-researched. So a lot of this stuff appears in the book. And the Tanguine test is they take a very poisonous seed and they'd scrape off part of it onto three chicken skins and they'd force somebody. It's sort of like the witch test, right? Where if you you drown, you're innocent. If you float, you're a witch, right? That kind of thing. Um, 
you had to swallow these three poison chicken skins. And if you threw all three of them up, you were innocent of whatever you were being accused of. But most people died horribly painfully from eating these poison chicken skins. And, and even lot... if you do throw them up, they had to be in a specific order or something like that. <laughs> like there's even more to it. Yes. There's also the thing where um, each you pay to have this done. I think it was $24, 24 whatever currencies there. And if you die, you get your money back. So whoever got for it goes back. <laughs> but if you survive, the queen gets $8, your accuser gets $8, and you get $8 back for it. Yeah. So, But it was incredibly, incredibly bloodthirsty. She's known as the Mad Queen. She was, she was really as awful as rulers get. There's very few historical examples. But in the 1970s, it suddenly became fashionable to revise the history on her and say, no, she was a misunderstood anti-colonialist who was hated because she kicked the British and the French out of Madagascar. And that's why everybody hated her, right? And so when this book is written in 77, I'm sure George MacDonald Fraser is hearing this revisionism about, no, this was actually a nobly anti-colonialist leader. And I'm sure reacting a little bit to it as well of like, this is an absurd portrayal of this person. You know, this is an absurd uh, view that uh, a sort of the way our understanding of history feels to me like it keeps getting stupider. Like history just keeps getting understood along modern moral axes more and more that the way history is talked about and understood exists upon these very simplistic moral axes, right? Of colonial, anti-colonial, you know? And if she was on, she was anti-colonial, therefore she's good. Whereas she's like, it's very hard to find somebody who killed as high a percentage of her own population as this ruler, you know? Not even, like, not even Stalin gets those numbers, but they, but those people also defend Stalin. The same people who are very happy to portray her in a positive light also love to defend Stalin. It wasn't. It wasn't nearly twenty million people, John, that he starved to death in the famine. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know about the revision. It sounds a lot like the Woman King kind of case, you know. Where oh, for sure. It, yeah, that's all it is is anti-colonialism. Then they must be a good guy. Yes, and not that this person is very objectively bad. I think that there's a better case for the Domi than there are for for Ranavalona <laughs> to be good people. And those were unrepentant slavers who continued the slave trade after Europe had shut it down, right? You know, there's a much better case for them being good than for her. She was particularly vicious towards anybody who wasn't part of her tribe, the tribe she grew up in, that essentially they were all enslaved or put to death. She was just, it was this crazy country built on like the 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 backs of of murder like her little house outside of the palace she wanted her giant wooden palace to be the biggest thing anyone had ever seen is what she had told them to build and just like you know 15,000 slaves died making it that kind of thing and then she had built her own little like sub palace house to live in that was covered in silver bells and she had a piano that nobody knew how to play she had never heard it played with with hands before until this woman wasn't a missionary she's like a professional traveler went and played the, the piano woman, from, or the Austrian yeah, woman yeah. yeah yeah played the piano for her and not and all of all of that kind of thing but it is my favorite I, one of my favorite historical uh tidbits from the book is how the army wouldn't they wouldn't build roads in madagascar because they thought that the any enemy could use it as an advantage so anytime she wanted to go there 
her servants would have to build roads in front of her, <laughs> which would then be left, you know, to the to the elements, you know, afterwards. So building like whole roads and whole like houses and stuff to house her whenever she wanted to go somewhere and then just leaving them behind. Yes. Um, and her son was apparently a very um, a noble, just ruler who sort of ended a lot of her most genocidal policies. And and the history of Madagascar in general is fascinating. Madagascar was was settled very late in the game. It's like the 1500s are when the first uh, real signs of like nations and communities are there. It's like very, very sparsely populated. And then in the yeah. 1500s is more or less when it's discovered, not by Europeans, but by the the people, the Malagasy who settle it and and rule those kingdoms there is it, 1500s. That's real. That's real late in the game for civilization. It is. One of the other footnotes that uh, McDonald Frazier brings up is that he mentions the custom of I couldn't really even understand it, but like leaving a newborn baby on the street to see if like they were worthy to live or something like no, that. No, no. It's if they're a good luck baby or not. And they're oh, good okay. luck. They're good luck if they don't get run over and crushed. Jesus. Yes. Anyway, he, he mentions that that was the one thing she did away with. That was the one <laughs> horrible custom she got rid of. The one, the one show of her humanity was that she decided not to have babies be crushed in the streets. <laughs> So yeah, we gotta give her that, to be fair. <laughs> yes, and there's definitely um, a lot of the joke of the book is that all of this British, all of this traditional British colonial spirit, British Empire upholding the Union Jack is all bullshit, right? That right. that Flashman who represents that, the hero Jahalabad, the symbol of the colonial spirit, right? The fighting British spirit is completely full of shit. All of the 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 sort of courtly manners that his wife is obsessed with, and the arist aristocratic leanings, and the the structure of of the military and the British national character is all a load of shit. It's hypocritical. It's empty. It's full of cowardice and racism and and violence and stupidity and just just the most selfish vileness. And contrasting that with this nightmarish country that doesn't have. Um, it's sort of like the British characters dressing bad things up in a, in nice clothes, right? Well, what if you didn't even dress it up in nice clothes, right? What yeah. would that look like, you know? And sort of the idea that like civilization is not just a powdered wig, it's something different than that, right? And how do we define civilization? And that's one of the things that Usman talks about, Solomon Usman, uh, is uh, that he's like, look, James Brooke, thinks that he's stopping something bad, but this has been the way of this area forever. You know, like he thinks he's stopping something bad, but what he's really doing is imposing his will on a culture that's just different from his culture, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the book is how do we define civilization, you know, and isn't there a huge amount of hypocrisy and grotesqueness to the British idea of civilization? Where can we locate a non-hypocritical version like what what's the best kind of vileness you know kind of kind of joke to contrast these things with each other and it's another great challenge that he sets up for himself that no matter how debauched uh <laughs> ranavalona and her subjects are these quote-unquote savages and barbarians that flashman comes upon somehow his own depravity and complete lack <laughs> of humanity is the worst thing yeah yeah 
and he's definitely the most most arranged and then also just so that you don't think that the two french ships and the british ship are heroes at the end they botch the raid coming in and then the captain of the british ship and the captain of the french ship are fighting over the de- the uh, the deposed flag they both want ranavalova's madagascar flag from the fort and they're fighting with each other on the beach about it like little children tell it you know yelling at each other it's my flag no it's mine making them look completely and utterly ridiculous they're not even greeted as like oh these you know here comes civilization it's like no here come these idiots fighting to tear the flags of these countries in half they don't have anything in their heart beyond you know just the simple i want this place i want it i want it to be a colony mine 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 they don't have anything going on in their heads beyond that because the book has is so filled with this you know kind of uh, gross humor throughout and this, you know, fun, entertaining, horrible humor throughout the moments of like real sentiment and poignancy, like hit you like a fist. They're yeah. like these great moments. Like Flashman has these introspective moments just where he's like looking, he's, 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 he's reflecting on, you know, Singapore and how he's been there recently and how he said the sky seems farther away when he's back now and his feelings toward Elsbeth, where, you know, he kind of realizes like, what does he say? He's like, you know, I don't yeah, know when I they're, her, but when they're fleeing the palace at the end, that's, yeah, well, and that's it's just too, the two of them before then when yeah. he's like, I don't know if I love her, but like, she's someone who I like to be around and I miss her when she's gone, you know, like, like, yeah, that's what love is really, you know, when it comes down to it. And it's amazing that he misses this. Does, does that moment. mean, I, does that mean I love you, John? I hope so. <laughs> he misses this introspective moment at the end. Uh, he glosses over it where, a man in the fort catches the uh, Malagasy flag as it falls and soldiers are surrounding him. Flashman doesn't see what happens to him, but it reflects his own, you know, phony heroism, you know, holding the Union Jack in Afghanistan. This guy is actually trying to save his flag. Yeah. The, Um, uh, the Hova soldier. Yeah. Yeah. That he misses that. But then he also has that moment in the boat, the very final moment of the book where they're uh, being taken away in the long boat. They're being quote unquote saved by the French. And all the Frenchmen are staring at Elspeth's legs and he takes the half of the flag that they've ripped away that he is actually cut in half, you know, to, to end the squabbling. <laughs> so but each one can have half of the right flag. Half. Yeah. Um, he takes the flag and he puts it over her legs so that they won't, they won't look at her. Yeah. You know? And like, that's a, then that's a, you know, to me, a, a very uncharacteristic moment of like being concerned for her, you know, defending her honor in yeah. a way that like, it's a really sweet way to end the book, honestly, which yeah. has been filled again with him being like, ah, shit, I don't really want to go out and save my with wife. This pea brain dingbat. <laughs> yeah, calling her an imbecile and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. I have a, I have, I have, one of the best quotes here. What is no, it? no, I'm when my, they're... My beautiful idiot Elspeth with her <laughs> creamy skin and golden hair and imbecile smile and wonderful body lost me lost to me forever no that's what i love is when they're escaping right and they're on horseback and he's talking about like you know and he's talking about how like you know what she's actually game for this she doesn't complain and she knows what needs to be done and she's actually tough and beautiful and smart and i love how her tits look bouncing on the horse right. <laughs> that's flashman and elspeth and a uh and a and a in a in a blurb in a sense yeah yeah absolutely it's great that you get like these moments where that that are ruined by the final sentence you know (laughs) where he's just got to become flashman at the very end of it i will say this book also has in common with picaresques that it makes fucking seem great 
it's so hard in novels to make fucking seem awesome and like and understand like horniness not be depressing or anything i always talk about this it's the eye of her rump problem right we're in uh unbearable lightness of being you have milan kundera who's very interested in sex and sexuality but when you describe sex to when you're trying to like dress it up in some way or explain it to people it always sounds gross and an unbearable lightness of being he talks about uh taking the uh, i forget what the character's name it's lean old character from behind and he's got her down on her knees and he loves looking into the eye of her rump and i'm like oh my god <laughs> oh my you make me puke like milan kundera like jesus like this is gross and any kind of serious writing about sex makes it seem gross most of the time sure, this book makes like sex like seem like fun and exciting the way it really is like oh man look at that tard's boobies and i'm like yeah yeah i like the <laughs> idea of that you know well it's the spirit of the swishbuckler again you know or the idea yeah. that like horny dudes chasing women you know is you don't have to think into you don't have to think how <laughs> the woman is feeling it's just like you know this is like rapscallion fun that we can get into and not have to like, you know, uh, put like, you know, the grosser aspects into it. Yeah, no, there's something about it that feels it captures the humanness of like, of like the the excitement of like wanting to fuck. It really does. It just like it captures the fun and excitement of it in a way that like, it's really, really hard to. And most books that deal with sex just don't. Even it has this very ribald, it's just a good mix of like ribald and genuinely vice filled, you know, appetites for it. Yeah. I'm going to go through a list of some of my favorite words I learned from this book, real quick. <laughs> yes. Dolly Mops is apparently a word for horse. <laughs> Never heard that one. Rolling no. in rhino <laughs> this means you're rich. One of Dick's hat band brigade, meaning you're gay. It's <laughs> a new one. Uh, doing it rather too brown is a good one. It means you're exaggerating. You're building something up too much. It's doing it rather too brown. I'll be using No, it one. means you're brown nosing too much. Oh, okay. Right. That's because that in the sequence, because I I noticed that one too. And it's like, he's trying to make Flashman seem like a great guy. And he says, doing it rather too brown. He's brown nosing. Brown nosing. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Snooks. Apparently, just some form of a rude refusal. He said, <laughs> he said "Snooks to me," and then "Silly Mort," which is what he calls Elspeth in uh, in impatience. And I have no idea what "Silly Mort" does. She even asks, "What does that <laughs> word mean?" And she gets like annoyed at him as they're escaping. He calls her that. Yeah, she's like, "What a terrible thing to say to me! I can't believe you said that." And what does it mean, by the way? <laughs> yeah. My favorite line, the line I wrote down, was he had a face like a fried ham garnished with a double helping of black whisker, which is fucking <laughs> amazing sounding. But you know what? I... He little knew that I could feel naked in a suit of armor in the bowels of a dreadnought being attacked by an angry bum boat woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I was thinking is they have all of the the censored words like bloody and Christ and damned. The one I could not figure out what it's supposed to be was B dot 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 T. Yeah. I was like, I have no idea A what that boner? What is that? Blast. I was thinking as blast and blasted seemed to that. And then also D dot 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 E. And I was like, you fucking got me. What yeah. word is supposed to? It took me a long time to get bloody because bloody's not in my 
mindset. So it was like, took me a long time to get bloody, but maybe, you know, Englishmen will immediately recognize D dot, 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 E. Well, that's obviously who the <laughs> fuck knows what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. But, I didn't um, figure that one out either. I look at a great line. Another one. I know, I know I tend to judge everyone by myself. And while I'm usually not far wrong to do so, there are decent and disinterested folk about here and there. I've seen some. <laughs> um, but just, you know, again, to go back to the, the footnotes and the diary excerpts and the sister-in-law censoring thing, this book is very self-consciously about commentary and how history is written and how and how perspective factors into our understanding of history. You know, the sequence in Madagascar, which has been absolutely hellish, absolutely hellish for Flashman. Uh, Elspeth's diary entries are very, very pleasant. You know what I mean? And I think that that speaks to some of the British colonial idea of like what's happening in the colonies is you have, you know, sort of the dim-witted aristocratic wife back home who's just like, oh, they can't possibly be travesties and tragedies happening in these places. I visited and they had very pretty birds, you know, that yeah. that really does get into that mindset of not even a willful blindness, just like a complete inability to consider that bad things are happening and there's a dark underbelly to things, you know? And it's funny that, that, you know, Flashman has a hellish time, but for Flashman, the hellish thing about it is like, he doesn't have the food he wants to eat and he has to have sex with this woman all the time. <laughs> How exhausting, you know, compared to what's happening to the other people around him. You know what moment I actually found really beautiful is after he passes the Tanguine test. Yes. And she looks him in the eye and, and, cries, and cries and touches him and does, mention that moment. does her approximation of a kiss because they don't kiss in Madagascar. They rub noses together. Mm -hmm. And she does her best like impression of a kiss that she's learned from him. And it's really like it gives you a sense of like this queen operating under incredible pressures that are opaque to you but there is something human behind them you know yeah and the kind of dual thought that like she's glad he survived and that he didn't betray her you know yeah that she believes that like there's not a plot against her after all yeah um, yeah because of really this ludicrous ritual yeah, that's obviously thing yeah it's it's a great book man i really liked it um it does seem like there's a for like this is again listening to the bad books for bad people episode it seems like there is like a formula to these books kind of like a three-part situation you know where he kind of travels to three different uh places locations you know um but i would love to read some more you know just to kind of see what else flashman gets into yeah i'd be interested to read flash for freedom now to see if it's if it goes beyond the pale or he hasn't figured out what he's doing, I think, I think I will say listeners to 90% of you, this book will be beyond the pale. I do think a lot of people, if you read this, you will be like, what the fuck, you know, like these racial slurs, it's, I, I cannot read them tossed off like this it's too much for me it's yeah, too I, sickening I for me as an I as an times you know, i cringed early on did, before i understand my wife at all you know before i understood what the strategy was and the reasons for it was i was yeah. definitely you're like oh where are you going with this but it's a critique there's no question it's a critique about the meaning of these words about the perspective of the colonists about the uh the ideas behind why do you censor blasphemies but not racial slurs about the changing mores through time right about our sense of history and our sense of perspective on history and sort of the the uh, moral stupidities of viewing the past through the modern access access right 
mm-hmm. axis uh, that that all of that stuff is in here. It's very, very sharp. It's very, very funny. It's very, very funny book. And it's a very like lively book. Liveliness, I think, is a quality that's really underrated in art. Like that sort of it feels alive jumping off the page type of stuff in novels and movies is very underrated quality. When you encounter a truly lively book, um, it's really shocking. It's really engrossing. It's really great. You know, I think this has it in common with the, with, cause I mentioned earlier with Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl writes really lively novels. And I think the unfetteredness of it, cause Roald Dahl's books are really mean also, right? That's part of the joy of Roald Dahl is his incredible meanness as a writer, you know, that this uh, has that same thing of it. Just think of those same publishers getting their hands on the Flashman books. and like, <laughs> there'd be on, nothing on left. Top. Yeah, yeah, there'd be nothing left at all on top of um, a grizzled Daisy Rothschilds, you know, censoring <laughs> of his mild swearing. There would just be censoring of all the racial slurs throughout the book. There'd just be sweat. There'd be no book left. There would be just no book, no book left. Uh, and but I think it's I it's a very it's a very fascinating novel. Even if you don't have fun with it, I think it's worth reading for its savviness too i i was really i was really knocked out by this one it's um, a book that's but it's right up my alley in like 50 different ways yeah i mean it's a book that's super funny you know in spite of myself i laughed so much reading it but what i thought about mainly was like the cricket scenes are just as rousing as the the pirate battles you know? yes like it's just really it's a book that engages you on every fucking level so it's I'm really so well written really well written and it's a high wear act it's a tough trick to pull off that's why i'm curious to read flash for freedom because if is there a circumstance in which he doesn't pull off the high wire act and he falls i'd be interested to read it it's hard to imagine that happening yeah it's hard to imagine that happening with royal flash which sticks to otto von bismarck and that kind of thing you know it's much less fraught territory than slavery you know so it's hard to say or flash among the racial slur for Native Americans. And you're like, you know, that title right up, right up is just announcing itself right up, like what it's going to be, you know, what you're kind of in store for uh, yes. going into this. Flashmen and the commanders. Am I understanding it correctly? <laughs> I still can't believe that's the name. <laughs> John, what is your dessert pairing? I'll do my dessert pairing first. Go for it. I think a good moral analog to this, and this is roundabout how we're going to end up here. Seijin Suzuki's fighting elegy is what I'm going to pair it with, right? Nice. Yeah. Um, this is this is Suzuki's semi-autobiographical book or movie based on a based on a novel that's about him as a student sort of growing up into fascist military culture in Japan, right? And it's an interesting connection because Tom Brown's school days was immensely popular in Japan. It was one of the most best-selling books there ever in the Meiji era. And sort of when you think of what Japan becomes, when it becomes westernized in the Meiji era, right before the Taisho era, uh, that one of the huge cultural influences is Tom Brown's school days, right? It's this wow. that idea of like country, state, right and wrong, authority, colonialism, all of those ideas get absorbed in Japanese culture in some minor way. And when you read Tom Brown's School Days, Fighting Elegy is a parody and critique of that mindset in the same way that Flashman is a parody and critique of that mindset 
from that that Tom Brown school days mindset. And so I think that's an interesting um interesting thing to put it in. I was a little tempted to say Tokyo Knights, even though I know that's a wrong, that's the wrong comparison for it. But there is a sporting match in that one. So I was like, ah, it's like cricket in here. But really, fighting <laughs> elegy, I think it's really when I found that out about Tom Brown's school days, I was like, oh, you can see that mindset getting taken by the fascist uh, uh, of, of colonial Japanese World War II culture. You can just see it really clearly. They're the same ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. That's great. That's a great pick. Love that movie. My pick is two episodes of Blackadder, the British comedy that feature the character Lord Flashheart, character I love, played by the great late Rick Mail. Uh, the best sword, the best shot, the best sailor, the best kisser in the kingdom, who <laughs> basically shows up to be a dashing swashbuckler-esque hero. Uh, and even though he has a name similar to Flashman, he really is the uh, Brook, the James Bro Sir James Brook of the of this uh, scenario because he is this hot-aired, you know, overblown hero. And the Flashman is, of course, Blackadder himself, and then Blackadder played by Rowan Atkinson, who can't stand him as the one person in the room. Who absolutely hates him <laughs> himself being you know just a completely uh rake you know completely uh only only interested in self-preservation and his own uh his own gain doesn't care about anything but that this is very much the flashman character i would be shocked to hear that ben elton and richard curtis were not obviously huge flashman fans uh, and then uh, lord flashman art shows up again in the fourth series black adder goes forth an episode called uh private plane as squadron leader the lord flash Hart during world war one um, it's great to see him back again. Uh, I definitely had that relationship in mind, especially during the middle section of uh, Blackadder's uh, Blackadder's Lady, where it's uh, Flashman's it's, Lady. Jeez, what did I do? Flashman's Lady. I was wondering why that didn't sound right. Um, <laughs> the, uh, where it's Brooke and Flashman, and in Flashman's observation <laughs> of, of of the adored James Brooke and his his mot motley crew. <laughs> are you i it's funny mentioning rick mail are you we've never once discussed are you a young ones fan it seems like it wouldn't have been on your radar too much but that no, was it, yeah it's something i didn't used to like and i kind of circled back to it recently and i appreciate it more but it's just it's not ultimately something i, I like it's if you, more, if you weren't a high school by. punk rock kid it was very important yeah. Yeah. It's very important to young punks to watch the young ones. Not something near and dear to me, but something I find fascinating for sure. Yeah, he plays Rick, the detestable Rick on that. <laughs> yeah, um, he's, he's very funny in that too. He's very funny. I didn't realize he was dropped dead Fred until recently. That was a big revelation. Oh, really? Which apparently yeah. everyone else knew. Everyone but me. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly disappointing. And that's a brutally, <laughs> it's, bru it's a brutally unfunny movie. I remember seeing that movie in seventh grade, Indian Lake Cinemas with Matt Hale. Um, no, we actually, Hale. we saw it, we saw it at the mall. What was the name of that mall? Hendersonville Mall? Rossgates Mall? Who knows anymore? Who knows what the names of all the malls and places I lived were called Eden anymore? Eden Prairie Mall. I don't Eden Prairie Mall. Don't fall in here. We're shooting Jason Lee's Mall Rats. Um, <laughs> John, this was a good pick. I sort of feel like uh, a, a, uh, uh, Flashman 
certainly would have hesitated to recommend this book to anyone if it if it <laughs> i feel like it takes a, a rejection of cowardice to speak on the record so enthusiastically for this book uh but i certainly really really enjoyed the hell out of it me too i'm glad we read it lash uh, when I was young, I actually thought that because for some reason I knew about the Flashman books uh, that, uh, oh, it's funny. We should uh, we should mention you and I were talking and I mentioned to my dad like, hey, I'm getting ready to read one of the Flashman novels. Have you ever read them? And he's like, no, I've never even heard of them. And in my head, I was like, that's weird. This seems like these books would be something dads love. Then reading it, it's like, no, no these are not. No, 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 no. These yeah. are not knowing, dad books. Knowing nothing about them. You're like, they're like Master and Commander, right? <laughs> yeah, they're like they're like a more comedic version of, you know, of, of a John LeCare novel. No, of a master and commander, exactly. Yeah, they're like they're like comedic Captain Blood, right? Am I understanding correctly? <laughs> they're 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 almost like Scaramouche, if I'm if I'm getting it right. Not Absolutely not. These not are not dad, dad books. Yeah, not dad books. <laughs> oh. No dads whatsoever. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody.